Hebrews chapter 4, John gave me this assignment, and so I'm happy to fill in for him today. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. This is a precious section of Scripture. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. May God bless the preaching of his word. This sermon begins a Christmas series we've titled Our Loving Savior. Uh, We always aim to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified from the scriptures. We love to declare the whole counsel of God. But in this series, we want to gaze directly at Jesus. We want to be holding him. We'll take four Sundays to do this. Uh, behold him, gaze him, and hopefully love him all the more. My title this morning is Our Sympathetic Savior. It comes from verse 15. This text has two important commands, and those two commands will be the two points of this sermon. First, let us hold fast our confession. That's verse 14. The second's in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace for help. You will notice in the text these two commands are based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The obvious implication is that if we are to fulfill these two commands faithfully, we must know what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. So, how do you describe a person? When we try to describe someone, how do we do that? If I say to you, tell me about Jesus Christ, I'm suggesting what comes to mind for many of us, me included, is what Jesus has done. And this is as it ought to be because what Jesus has done for us, 1 Corinthians 15 says, is of first importance. We believe in the incarnation, the virgin birth. We believe Jesus lived a sinless life on our behalf. We believe Jesus laid down his life on a cross, was raised in three days, ascended on high, rules and reigns over all. These are all vital truths. You've heard these facts. Many of us believe these facts. But just because we know facts about a person does not mean we know that person. Take, for example, Taylor Swift. This is the portion of the sermon where I get myself in trouble. So, head up. A number of my family members, not Beth, enjoy Taylor Swift's music. I tried. I tried twice. I failed. I don't get the buzz. So, who is Taylor Swift? 
And, and by the way, I picked a musician because back at Living Hope, I'd have picked an athlete because that church was more into sports. Here, doesn't seem to be the case, so I'm going music because it's about all I got is sports and music. So that's what I'm down to. So, so who is Taylor Swift? Well, she's an artist who this year had the highest grossing tour of all time. The estimate is $780 million. Tickets were simply astronomical. Swifties, they're called. We're snapping them up, $4,000, $5,000 a pop. I go to concerts. I'm accustomed to expensive, but not. I don't play in that league. Um, that's an awful lot of money. She dates the tight end on the Kansas City Chiefs, last I heard, and she writes songs about her breakups. But who is she? You don't know Taylor Swift. You've heard her name, but you don't know who she is at all. We don't know Taylor Swift. Friend, do you know Jesus? Not asking, have you heard about him? I'm not asking, do you believe what he did? I'm asking if you know him. Not only what he's done, do you know who he is? Jesus, on one occasion in his earthly ministry, took time to describe himself. It's a scripture we're wise to know thoroughly and hold close. It's, it's a familiar path for many of us. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus says of himself, I am gentle. Dane Ortland in the book Gentle and Lowly, which many of us have, I hope many of us have read, says meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger but open arms. Jesus is gentle. Jesus says of himself, I'm lowly in heart. Dane Ortland writes this, but typically throughout the New Testament, this Greek word refers not to humility as a virtue, but humility in the sense of destitution or being thrust downward by life circumstance. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. This, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is, tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. If we were asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we'd be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. Jesus is lowly in heart. And...
people who spend time with him become like him. People who behold him also become gentle and lowly in heart. Even Peter, brash, bold, arrogant Peter, early in his life in following Jesus, a problem, always out front, his mouth getting him in trouble. But by the end of his life, even Peter is gentle and lowly when we read his epistles. If we are to hold fast our confession, and if we are to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, we need to know what Jesus has done and who he is. So today, as a lunch exercise, to help us think about a person, not only by what they do, but by who they are, perhaps you could take two or three words to describe a spouse or a family member or a friend of yours. Because we're so accustomed to thinking that a person is what they does that we might need a little work at thinking about who they actually are. Bonus would be take two or three words to describe yourself. Jesus said he's gentle and lowly. What, what two words or three words might you use to describe yourself? Here's another example in this exercise. I love Beth. We've been together since our first date at 18 and 16 for over 50 years. If I describe her to you in terms of what she does, which is considerable, you still wouldn't know her, and you wouldn't know why I love her because it would sound like, oh, she's a good maid, um, nice, she takes good care of you, that's, that's a wonderful thing. But that's not why I love her, I could hire a maid. Love her for who she is in the beauty of her person, and it's always been that way. D.A. Carson, in A Call to Spiritual Reformation, says, the one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. When it comes to knowing God, we are a culture of the spiritually stunted. In this series, we want to grow you in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, not just what he's done, but who he actually is. So, two points. First, let us hold fast our confession. The situation uh, for the unknown author of Hebrews uh, is addressing is this. Uh, some think Hebrews is actually a sermon that was delivered, but this letter is written to Jewish believers who are downcast and discouraged. The times are difficult. They include persecution, and every generation from when Jesus left this world, every generation has faced challenges and trials, whether it's the Word of God that comes under attack or the resurrection of Christ from the dead. There's always some issue or issues that are being contested, and often the church has faced persecution. So the letter has several exhortations um, to endure despite hardship, to persevere in the faith. So there are serious, genuine warnings throughout this letter to the Hebrews. These believers were sincere. 
They were genuine, but it seems that perhaps they were beginning to wonder whether following Jesus is really worth it because it seemed like such a bother and it seems so difficult. And perhaps some of you today find yourself in that place where for whatever reason, you're wondering whether following Jesus is worth it. I hope this sermon helps to serve you by convincing you that it is worth following Jesus. So the author teaches in chapter 1 that Jesus is supreme. He says he upholds the universe by his word. He is greater than all the angels. We're warned in chapter 2 not to neglect so great a salvation. We're reminded in chapter 3 that Jesus is greater than Moses because for the Jewish believers there would have been this temptation to go back. Uh, you, you might be able to relate to this as well. We at times want to go back to some point in our life, but we must always live life moving forward. We don't get to go back. Uh, you remember the Israelites coming out of Egypt? Slavery and bondage for 400 years out in the desert, and they say we want to go back to Egypt. There's just this tendency to want to go back. And we're encouraged in chapter 4 to enter a rest. Uh, do not harden your hearts. So to this people, and it comes down to us as well, the author says, hold fast our confession. Hold fast our confession. Notice the complete lack of do more, try harder. Often in hard times, this is the way we respond. What do I need to do? Well, the, the writer to Hebrews is giving us necessary to-dos, but it begins with doctrine. It begins with what we believe. That's the starting point because we always live out of the doctrine we believe. We're told to renew our minds according to truth. This is the foundation for our confession. So what is our confession? It's in verse 14. First, we have a high priest, a great high priest. This is one reason we need the Old Testament. Priest isn't a common word for most of us. Maybe if you were raised Catholic, it is. For most of us, we're not there, and so it's not a common word. We need to know what a high priest does. And Leviticus 4 and Leviticus 16 tell us the high priest serves as a mediator between God and people. A goat was selected, a perfect, flawless goat without blemish, once a year. And the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people of God. Another goat is selected, and sins are symbolically placed on this animal, and it's released out into the wilderness. And this tells us that animal sacrifices were never enough. So Hebrews 9 tells us Jesus entered once for all into the Holy of Holies by his own blood, once for all, no more sacrifices. Jesus is our great high priest. Second, he has passed through the heavens. This indicates he rose from the dead on the third day and he ascended into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of God the Father, now having all authority, ruling and reigning. This means there is presently a human being seated on the throne Beside God the Father, ruling and reigning over all things with nail-scarred hands, and all authority is his. Who is he? Well, third, Jesus is the Son of God. One person with two natures, 100% human, 100% God. It was necessary that a perfect human dies a sinless sacrifice. So doctrine matters. 
Some ignorantly say, I don't know why the church argues over all these things. I just want Jesus. Jesus was a nice guy. He was a good example. And I just want to follow that Jesus. I want to avoid debates, but we must define what he is and who he is. So that's the confession we hold fast. It is not our work, but his work. The cross is our only boast. And so we boast in what Jesus has done. We do not boast about our works. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. God saved us, and Jesus is our Savior and Lord. So Dane Orland again says, Christ was not sent to men wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. That's our testimony. We were dead in our sins, and we were raised to life by the glory of the work of Jesus Christ. So hold fast your confession. Raymond Brown in his commentary says, the confession of the faith we possess is a treasure beyond price. It cannot be lightly dismissed or thoughtlessly abandoned. It makes life worth living. And throughout the testimonies, hundreds of men and women have been prepared to die for it. These first century believers were urged to hold fast to such a faith. This is not merely an appeal for endurance, but an exhortation to fearless witness. Don't be robbed of your faith. Advertise it. Hold it fast and hold it forth. But then we come to verse 15, and we should all be stunned. This is breathtaking. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you know this Jesus? Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. Here's the human tendency. We tend to believe no one knows what it's like to go through what I'm going through. No one knows how difficult and how hard my life is on a regular basis. No one knows my situation, my trials, and my pains. But friend, while humanly speaking that may be true, Jesus knows everything you're going through. He is aware. Jesus was tempted in all the ways we are tempted He was tempted to worship Satan. He was tempted to pride, self-sufficiency. He was tempted to lust. He knew what it was to be lonely. He knew physical pain. He knew what it was like to be tempted to selfishness, to boasting, to idolatry and presumption. He was rejected as well. He knows every category, yet Jesus never sinned, meaning He endured more temptation than we have. Jesus never sinned. And he's sympathetic to our weaknesses. I mean, isn't that a bit surprising? Sympathetic to our weaknesses? That's that's a kindness. I hope it's not news to you. But we all have weaknesses in this life, every one of us. We have weaknesses. For Jesus to sympathize with us means he will have sympathy or compassion or pity. 
His heart toward us is tender. His heart toward us is love. So David wrote in Psalm 103, verse 10 and following, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As we grow in Christ's likeness, as we behold Christ, as we see his glory, and as we become aware of who he is, we too sympathize with others. And it's actually quite ugly when we don't. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy isn't exactly always valued in our culture. Check out your Twitter feed and look for mercy. It's not there. Mercy is considered weak, ignorant. We'd much rather be strong, much rather be able, much rather not look weak. But Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And in Romans 12, 15, Paul writes, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, this is to resemble our Savior. This is to imitate Jesus, who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. It's remarkable, is it not? Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, that could go too far. Uh, To be sure, it doesn't mean a sloppy agape or a love that's indifferent to sin does not mean that at all. By no means should sin abound in our lives. We put sin to death. But the point is we're patient with folks. So Jesus tells us we practice forgiveness not just seven times, but 70 times seven. We practice forgiveness without end. Well, won't someone get the upper hand? Not ultimately. Not ultimately. No, we're called to be merciful called to weep with those who weep. So we are a forgiving people. We're not like the ungrateful servant who's forgiven a lesser debt and still goes and strangles those who owe him. No. No, we, as we live our life, we will hold fast our profession seeing what Jesus has done. But not just that. Secondly, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace for help. We have very good reasons to draw near. Our Savior is gentle and lowly. He sympathizes with us. He's a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And the point of this is to say we need help. We have weaknesses, and friends, we are not in control. Something could happen to you in the next minute of your life that changes everything, and you didn't choose it. 
we're not in control. That would be a delusion you're suffering from to whatever extent you think you're in control. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. We draw near with confidence because we know the facts. We know the truth. We know the doctrine. But more, we know his gracious disposition toward us. What I find amazing about this is we all know what it's like to be disappointed by people. Thinking of other people, we know what it's like to be let down, to be hurt, to be disappointed. And and speaking for our own end, we know to some extent at times what it's like to mistreat someone else, even those that we love. We know their pain and sorrow. And we think, surely God's had enough of us as well. Surely he's disappointed in us because I stumble over that thing again. But this is where grace is amazing. This is where grace is astonishing. Not a one of us deserves this offer of help. Not a one of us. This offer of mercy and grace is free. We're never trapped. We're never stuck. There is always a way out. There is always hope. Help is near So draw near. So we approach the throne of grace. Where else are you going to go? I mean, consider your options. Besides the throne of grace for help in your moment of need, well, you could go to bitterness. Um, Some folks do that. Anger. You can go to anger instead of drawing near to the throne of grace because maybe that will feel good for a second. Sensual pleasures trying to be strong in your own might, perhaps abuse a substance. All of these paths only enslave, and they do not lead us to godliness. There's freedom in approaching the throne of grace for help. What do you need to come to the throne of grace? Nothing but faith to trust that help is available. As we fight our way through life, we must always think so we believe sound doctrine and we pray. These two are always paired together. It isn't just doctrine in the Christian life. Doctrine's not enough. I know people who have sound doctrine and I don't want to be like them because they don't resemble Jesus. And they got the facts all right. Gospel doesn't live. It's not just doctrine. Doctrine is not enough. Neither is it just prayer. It's not just enough to pray. We need to both hold fast our confession and come to the throne of grace for help. We never dare separate them. What we believe about God is true. What we believe about Jesus is true. And who he is is also a reality. So we must practice both. This is the way forward. It is our very great need and therefore our aim to obtain mercy and grace. Why is that our need? Well, mercy means I didn't receive what I deserved. This is, this is remarkable because we all want a just world. And when it comes to everybody else, 
but, but God is merciful. And so I didn't get what I deserved. Once proud and arrogant in my youth, I look back at some pictures of me. You can see pride written all over me. And I had no resume to brag of. There was no logical reason that I should be a proud person. And yet there it was. Mercy means I didn't receive what I deserved. On our very best day now, our works, which God calls good, are not good enough to save us. But they are precious in his sight, and they are indeed good works. They just aren't perfect works, and they don't therefore save us. Grace means I receive that which I do not deserve. So what I'm given, I actually don't deserve. Arthur Jerry Bridges uses the acronym G, God's, are riches a, at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense because it cost Christ something for us to have grace. So we need mercy and we need strength. We don't deserve the help we get, but our great high priest has made this help available to us, free without charge to us. It is simply available to the one who comes. What a gift we have. So how do you actually approach the throne of grace? Well, it's largely by means of prayer. Now, we pray the word, and we certainly sing the word, but there's a little there's a little acronym ACTS, which I find helpful, because back, so when you go back into the early days of Christian radio, back, this is back in the 80s, uh, there was this song that was one of the top hits of the day, where the lyrics were, give me this, give me that, uh, Lord, I pray. And, and, and the point of the prayer was to say that some of us just approach God with, give me this and give me that. That's, that's the extent of, of our requests. And if you had a child that did that to you, if you can think as a parent, who just came to you and said, give me this and I want that, you, you would want to adjust that child, I'd suggest, to consider some other attributes that are in play. So in the case of prayer, A stands for adoration, C for confession. So it's great to just adore the Lord, enjoy him, not be asking for something. C is confession. T, thanksgiving. And S is supplication. We do bring requests. It's just that we, as we come, we don't only bring requests. We enjoy our sympathetic Savior as we are approaching the throne of grace for help. So these are all ordinary means of grace, but Ordinary means of grace are radical, and they are life-changing. That's why we pay careful attention to them on a daily and weekly basis. Because by using ordinary means of grace, we look to Jesus. So let me close. The Christian life is simple, but it isn't easy. The fruitful, faithful path will always include the two steps mentioned in our text. Let us hold fast our confession and let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace for help. I've proposed to you that to do this, we must know Jesus both in doctrine, what he does and what he has done, and we must know who he is. We must feel and know his heart for people. Friend, don't lose sight of his heart for you. 
If you don't know his heart for you, it's doubtful you will draw near for help. Why would you approach a mean, stingy, nasty, angry miser for help? But Jesus bids us come. In one of my favorite stories regarding the disciples, they're actually in the boat with Jesus. And a storm comes up and, and waves are blowing and the disciples are freaking out. They think they're going to die. And Jesus is just sleeping in the front end of the boat. And what do the disciples say to Jesus? They say, don't you care? Friends, that's where some of us are at today in our relationship with God. He's laying out this invitation to come and to come freely. And some of us are saying, don't you care? He cares. He cares deeply for us and he is lavish in his affection. We sometimes want a physical reality when Jesus is a spiritual reality. So let's reflect on our lives and see where we stand. Do you know what Jesus has done? Do you know his work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead? Do you know his heart for you? And are you drawing near to the throne of grace for grace and mercy, for help in your time of need? If not, why not? Jesus is faithful to his word. Is there an area, a burden, a trial in your life where it seems all is lost? It seems hopeless. It seems as if nothing will change or nothing will work. We often want a circumstance to change. God often wants us to change. And he's often at work in us for his glory as we work through various issues in our life. But God doesn't need to change a circumstance to prove he loves us. He's already shown us his love on Calvary. He's already brought the dead to life. He has really nothing more to prove to us on that account. So God's at work in us to mold us into the image and likeness of Christ. He will see to it that we are in places and situations uniquely designed for us to grow and bear fruit for his glory. He knows what he's doing in our lives. You will become gentle and lowly like the Savior. And all this is for his glory. You might have noticed he didn't save us and take us straight to heaven. Wouldn't that be something? Um, but he didn't do it that way. No, we're here and we grow up into Christ. One day, no more tears, no more sorrows, no pains, no injustice, no more wrongs. And we look forward to that day, especially with no more death. But until then, let us hold fast our confession and let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace of help for God is for us and not against us. Romans eight thirty one and following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This Christmas season, let every heart prepare him room. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The door is open to all. Will you, with confidence, hold fast your confession and draw near to the throne of grace for help in time of need? No problem is too large. No pain is too small. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, delights to meet with us and sympathize with us. Jesus is willing and Jesus is able. I'd like to pray, and I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. We'll sing one song in closing. Let's bow our hearts together before the Lord. Lord, I'm sure most of us are aware of what you've done for us in Christ, and we do make the cross our boast, and we are grateful for the resurrection, which seals and verifies the work Jesus did on the cross. But Lord, I'm less confident that we dwell and live with who you are, with your sympathy toward us. And I pray that in this Christmas season, through this month of December, as we look at Jesus, our loving Savior, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be warmed toward Jesus. So strengthen us, I pray. Help us to know facts, to know truth. And then I pray that our lives would be changed by the work of Jesus. So I pray that we would know Jesus and love Jesus, that we would approach the throne of grace for help. And I pray that the transforming work of Jesus would be at work in our lives so that we would be Christians. We would be those of whom others can say, he or she is also gentle and lowly. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.